All right, so you guys know him as Matthew, but the Gospels of Mark and Luke, they call him Levi. Levi, the tax collector who lived in Galilee during the first century AD. He made his home in Capernaum. Capernaum was a fishing village situated on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if you see the Sea of Galilee on the screen, just say amen. All right, so look at the top left, northwest shore, that's Capernaum. It was a busy fishing village on a busy trade route that went through Galilee and up into Syria. Now, if you go with us to Israel, things have to calm down before we go back, but if you go with us to Israel, next slide, we're gonna tour the archeological remains of Capernaum that are beautifully situated right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then, next slide, we're gonna uh, examine the remains of two synagogues one that you see on your screen, which is a, a, um, from around the fourth century AD. And then there's another one that you can't see, but when you go with us, we'll take you and we'll look over the side and we'll look down. And you guys know the farther you go down, the farther you go down in history. And so we'll look down on the rocks of a synagogue, listen to this, from the first century AD. Jesus made his headquarters, his Galilean ministry headquarters in Capernaum, and so the rocks that you look at will be the rocks from the synagogue that Jesus himself no, um, no doubt attended on Sabbath. Now, as you know, in New Testament times, the Roman Empire ruled over Israel, and the Jews hated it. Many Jews despised the Romans, but there was one group of people that they despised even more, and that was Jewish tax collectors. I mean, fellow Jews who had the audacity to go and work for the enemy. And that was Levi. Whenever it was that Levi made a choice in his life, and it was a choice. How many of you guys know that life is made up of choices? How many of you guys know that we reap what we sow, right? And so he made a choice to go to work for the enemy. He made a choice to go to work for Rome. And no doubt, because of that choice, he was scorned by his own people. No doubt, Levi lived an isolated life there in Capernaum. And whenever a Jew got in line to pay his taxes and was waiting, and he saw and he looked, and he saw a fellow Jew in that tax booth waiting to take his money, waiting, no doubt, uh, probably to skim some off the top, so he can make himself rich. You know that it made the Jews in line, it made their blood absolutely boil. Now, even though they considered Levi and Capernaum, they considered him a traitor, there's nothing they could do about it because stationed right outside the tax booth was an armed Roman soldier. And so that's the background of the person that wrote the gospel that we're gonna study here in the weeks and months to come. And so while Levi was collecting taxes in Capernaum, you need to know that Jesus was also there. And what was he doing? He was ministering to the people. And you guys know that wherever Jesus went, right, there's always a crowd that followed. And so because of his magnificent messages and because of his mighty miracles, the name Jesus of Nazareth was known by everybody in Capernaum and probably everybody in Galilee as well. And his name was known by a tax collector named Levi who apparently wanted to know more about this famous rabbi who could work miracles. 
And one day, Levi got his chance. Luke tells us about it. Luke wrote this. He said, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named, go ahead and say his name, Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, Levi, rose and followed him, Jesus. Now, can you imagine this? Levi just got up and left everything. Follow me, right? And he leaves his ledger. He leaves the money. He leaves the tax booth. I wonder what the soldier thought when the guy that he was assigned to in that district, the tax collector that he was assigned to, just got up and left and followed the famous preacher from Nazareth. Now, we know from history that there was a Roman garrison in Capernaum. Because it was such a busy town and the busy trade route, uh, there was a Roman garrison there to keep control, right? And so I wonder if that Roman soldier who was assigned to Levi, I wonder if he went and told his commander that, hey, your tax collector just left. We don't know. But what we do know is this. If you're listening, say amen here. Jesus changed Levi's life. He absolutely changed his life. And apparently he gave him a new name. The name Matthew, which means gift of God. Now, if you're familiar with the series called The Chosen, you know there's a certain quote from Mary Magdalene that has impacted millions of people in our culture today. Here it is. Here's the quote. Mary Magdalene said, I was one way, and now I am completely different, and the thing that happened in between was him. I love that. Notice the thing that happened in between was not religion. It was not keeping rites and rituals or a to-do list. The thing that changed Mary's life and the thing that changed Matthew's life is actually a person. His name is Jesus. And by the way, he's alive, he's risen, and he's still changing lives today. So think about this. In regards to Matthew, Matthew was going his own way, doing his own thing. He's working for the enemy. He's betraying his own people, and he's getting rich off of this. And yet, listen to this, Jesus still loved him. How many of you guys know Jesus loves sinners? And he went after him. And listen, when Jesus said, follow me, here's what Matthew did. He turned to Jesus. Now, everybody follow me here. When you turn to Jesus, what are you turning away from? Your what? Your sin. And that's what Matthew did. He turned from his sin and to the Savior, and he began to follow Jesus. And what's the result? Well, just like Mary, Matthew could say later, I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. The question I have in my mind is have you turned from your sin and to the Savior in genuine repentance and faith? In other words, what I'm wondering is are you saved? And since you got saved, have you been following Jesus? Not a little bit, not half-heartedly, but have you been following Jesus with all your heart? And if not, what are you waiting for? 
Man, real life change is waiting for you if you'll just follow Jesus. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew would have been very skilled in numbers. Matthew would have been very skilled in languages. No doubt he knew Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. And Matthew was also skilled in writing. So ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt he said, follow me. When Matthew began to follow Jesus around for the better part of three years, there is no doubt that he wrote down, he took notes, he recorded Jesus' teachings, and he recorded Jesus' miracles as well. And then at some point after the resurrection, he compiled all the notes together and then he wrote an official account of the ministry of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. Now, he began with the Lord's genealogy. But before we get to that, because this is week one of Matthew, the kickoff of the Gospel of Matthew, I want to give you an overview of Matthew's Gospel. All right? And so the author, as I already said, is Matthew, a Jewish tax collector who became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now the audience, Matthew's original primary audience was Jewish people. Now most of us I know we're Gentiles, right? That does not mean that this gospel is not applicable to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the word of God. It's absolutely applicable to us. But you need to know that Matthew's original audience was primarily Jewish people. We know that for several reasons. First of all, because when Matthew began Jesus' genealogy, he started with Abraham. You can't get any more Jewish than that, right? Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation. Whereas when Luke, in Luke 3, when he wrote Jesus' genealogy, he started with Adam, the father of all humankind. Not only that, we know that Matthew wrote primarily to the Jews because he quotes from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, over and over and over again. And so not only that, he does it, by the way, more than any other gospel writer, but not only that, he refers to Jesus as the son of David 10 times. The title, son of David, very Jewish title. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But Matthew uh, talks about Jesus being the son of David 10 times, whereas Mark, three times, Luke, three times, John, zero times, <laughs> And then nobody else in the New Testament except for Paul. Paul one time refers to Jesus as the son of David. Another reason we know that Matthew wrote primarily to Jews was because when he got to Jewish customs, and we'll see this in the weeks and months to come, but when he got to various Jewish customs, he never felt a need to explain them. Other gospel writers, you get a Jewish custom, he explains it, not Matthew, and so another evidence that he's writing primarily to the Jews. What's the theme? The theme is Christ the King. I love that. Now, how do you know that's the theme? It's so obvious, right? Here's why. Because Matthew alone records thing that, things that the other gospel writers don't. Matthew alone records Jesus talking about how one day he's going to sit on his quote-unquote glorious throne, talking about the Davidic throne, Israel's throne. Matthew alone talks about how Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And only Matthew uses the word kingdom, get this, 
50 times, over 50 times in the gospel of Matthew. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. Why? Because the point he's trying to get across to us is that Christ is the king. And I wonder if he's the king of your life. I wonder if you're allowing him to rule your life. Or are you still going your own way, doing your own thing? And are you still the boss of your life? If that's true, if you're not following Jesus, I hope today will be the day that you begin to follow him. Now, what's the literary genre? Well, the literary genre of Matthew is historical narrative. So what we have in the Gospel of Matthew is real history. Listen, written in story form. And so Matthew was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness who recorded the facts of um, various stories within Jesus' ministry. If you look up, I think I skipped it, the dates, the date is the 50s and the 60s. Now the reason I put those dates there is because I wanna emphasize this. If you're listening, say amen here. Listen, those dates, even if it's, ni- if, if it's AD 69, those dates, ladies and gentlemen, are way too early for legend to sneak in. Do you guys understand what I'm saying here? We're talking about apologetics here. We're talking about Matthew, what is he? He's an eyewitness. He's following Jesus around. What is he doing? He's recording his messages. He's recording his miracles. What does he do later? He writes it down. Somewhere before AD 70, before the Jewish temple is is destroyed. And so what do you call this? We call this real history in story form. Does this make sense to you guys? All right. You also need to know that Matthew didn't always present the events of Jesus' ministry in strict chronological order. What he did often is he grouped them around five main discourses. So again, overview of Matthew today. What are the five main discourses that we're going to study in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, if you're taking notes, the first one is the discourse of the Sermon on the Mount. I think the greatest sermon ever given in the history of mankind. Jesus Christ giving the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you who have red letter editions, you know Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you go through it, it's a sea of red. Why? It's the greatest sermon that anybody has ever given, and I cannot wait to get to it. We're going to make a whole series out of it. It's going to be amazing, and it's very, very applicable to our lives today. And then there's another discourse that revolves around the mission of the disciples, who, by the way, if you're new to Scripture, Jesus did not send his disciples initially to the Gentiles. He sent his disciples exclusively to the lost sheep of the house of what? Israel. And so here's the pattern you see in the Gospels. The Gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek or then to the Gentile. And we see that that's because that's the way Jesus wanted it. And then three, I can't wait till we get to chapter 13. It's the kingdom parables. And so it's very, very interesting. We'll go really deep when we get to chapter 13, but what you have in Matthew 13 is you have religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, and they're saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. I mean, I don't know how much lower you can go than that. The eternal son of God, 100% God, 100% man, comes to help people, and they say he's got a demon. They say he does miracles by the work of Beelzebub, right? 
And so Jesus knows by Matthew 13, the nation of Israel is gonna reject me as the Messiah. So what does he do? He switches gears, and in human terms, he postpones the earthly kingdom till later, and he enacts the spiritual kingdom in this present day. By the way, for the church, let me just ask you, raise your hand, is Jesus your king? Raise your hand right now if Jesus is your king. Well, there's the spiritual kingdom right there. The kingdom of God is within you. We'll talk a lot more about that when we get to the kingdom parables, but then we're gonna get to chapter 18. We're gonna talk about successful community or church life. And ladies and gentlemen, no church can be successful unless it's filled with people who are humble. No church can be successful unless it's filled with people who are repentant. And no church can be successful unless it's filled with people who forgive one another. So we'll talk all about that and then we'll wrap it up at least the five discourses with the end times. And even though we just finished the series, I can't wait to get to this one. And so Jesus himself is gonna talk about the imminent rapture. He's gonna talk about the coming tribulation, the second coming, and the judgment of the nations. All right, so we're done with the overview. Let's look at verse one. Right now, if you're looking at Matthew chapter one, verse one, can you just say amen so I know you're there? So here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look at this, Jesus Christ, every word means something here. The son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so what's the true identity of Jesus? Well, first of all, you need to know that our English name Jesus derives from the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Or title the message today, the Lord is salvation. And then if you're brand new to all this, you need to know that Christ is not his last name. It's not like Mike Wiggins, right? It's not Jesus Christ, it's a title. And the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. The Hebrew equivalent is Mashiach, or Messiah, the anointed one. And then you have the son of David, which points to Jesus being Israel's eternal king. Now this is where I, I fight with mixed emotions. You gotta pray for your pastor, right? Because I'm your pastor, and I want you to know the word of God. I want you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to understand that being a disciple is not just being a follower of Jesus, that the word disciple means learner. I want you to learn, right? And here's what breaks my heart. And I wanna talk about this church right now. We'll talk about other churches, okay? A lot of churches in America, they have no idea about the three great covenants in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, they have no clue about any of that. Ladies and gentlemen, not only should you know that, each of those covenants, like the back of your hand, you should be teaching them to your kids as well. Why? Because every single covenant is a promise, an unconditional promise that God has made and that God will fulfill that has a massive impact on the future of our world. So you gotta understand this, you gotta get this. We don't check our brains at the door when we come to church, we're learners. And you gotta understand that regarding the covenant of, of 
that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. God promised David, listen to this, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Listen, your throne will be established forever. Wow, God Almighty, the infinite God, the only God, the eternal God, made a promise to David that can never be reneged, and he said that your throne, David, will be established forever. It's called the Davidic covenant. Massive implications regarding the future of our world. So I want you to answer like you mean it. I want you to answer loud and proud. Here's my question you can answer out loud. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? You tell me. He's a promise keeper. So what did he do? He sent his son Jesus. Jesus Christ, son of David, to be our king forever. Nothing's more important than this. And so Jesus Christ came, right? And he'll be the king of anybody, Jew or Gentile, who will give their lives to him. And of course, we know, we just finished the end time series, that one day he's coming back and he's gonna be king over Israel during the millennial period. He is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant. Moms and dads, do your kids have any clue? And so what did God promise Abraham a thousand years before David? He said this, quote, Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what does it mean in you? Well, God defined you in Genesis twenty-two eighteen. He said, quote, in your seed, Singular, not plural. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. It has massive implications for the future of our world. I'm gonna ask you again. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? You tell me. He's a promise keeper. What does that mean? That means that he sent his son Jesus. The seed of Abraham and the risen Christ will bless anybody, anywhere, anytime, who gives their, life, gives their life to him. That's worth clapping for right now. Everybody should be clapping. I'm gonna join you. Thank you, God, for keeping your promises. Now, Matthew knew. Matthew knew that he had to give evidence to the Jews. Remember, he's writing primarily to the Jews. He's gotta give evidence to prove that Jesus was a descendant both of Abraham and of David. Otherwise, Jesus would have no rightful claim to the Davidic throne. I wanna see if you've been listening. How long is the Davidic throne, David's throne, established before God Almighty? How long, you tell me. Forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. And so Matthew has to prove to these Jews that Jesus descended from David, otherwise Jesus has no rightful claim to David's throne. So before writing about anything else in these 28 chapters, Matthew begins with Jesus' genealogy. Now there are actually two genealogies in the New Testament, I think I alluded to this earlier, one in Matthew 1, one in Luke 3. Here's the difference. There's lots of differences, but here's the main difference. Matthew records Joseph's genealogy, 
who was Jesus' legal adoptive father. Whereas Luke records Mary's genealogy, who was Jesus' natural biological mother. But here's the main point. Both lines run through who? You tell me. King David. And so Matthew showed how Jesus' lineage could be traced from King David through Solomon, his son, all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' stepdad. Whereas Luke showed how Jesus' lineage can be traced from King David through another one of David's sons, Nathan, all the way down to Jesus' mother, Mary. What's the point? Whether you're tracing Jesus' lineage from Joseph, um, um, whether you're following Joseph's line or whether you're following Mary's line, both end up at King David, which proves that Jesus had a rightful claim to the Davidic throne. And so after listing all these names, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going all the way down to Joseph, Matthew wrote this in verse 17. Please look at Matthew chapter one, verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were how many generations? 14. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were how many generations, everybody? And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, how many generations? 14. Now, before I tell you why he put 14 there, let me just say, that if you've done an extensive study on the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew, you know Matthew skipped entire generations. Matthew omitted names on purpose. It's a common, it was a common practice um, in Judaism so that these records could be concise and so that these records could be easily memorized. Now, we don't really get it, right? Um, but for the Jews, man, your, 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 genealogy, your, your, um, your lineage was very, very important. And so what does Matthew do, other Jews do, when they record genealogies? They sometimes give you an abridged version, right? So it's concise, it's easily to mem- easy to memorize. Now, Matthew also abbreviated his list to showcase three major sections of Hebrew history. So 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then 14 generations from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to the birth of the king, Jesus Christ. All right, so why 14? Well, some scholars believe Matthew chose the number 14 in his abridged genealogy because of the numerical value of David's name. In other words, when you add up the three Hebrew letters in the name David, you get four plus six plus four, and that equals 14. And so because he's writing to a Jewish audience and because David is their national hero, Matthew adds up the numerical value of their hero's name and then make sure that he abridges the genealogy into three sections of 14. The Jews would have loved it when they read this. Now, just so you know, I am not gonna read verses two through 16. (laughs) Two reasons why. One, for time's sake, I've got 
12 minutes. And I'm going to respect your time. One, for time's sake. But the other reason is because I know I'm going to butcher some of these names, all right? But for the time we have left, I do want to pull out of Jesus' genealogy four names where people who read those names, thousands of people, millions of people down through 2,000 years, read those names, they scratch their heads and they think, that person made the genealogy of the Messiah? Do you know what that person did? How many of you guys believe that we serve a God who gives us amazing grace? Do you believe that? Yeah. That's seen even in the genealogy of Jesus. So who were the four people that were recipients of God's amazing grace, even though they were great sinners? Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Manasseh. All right, so we'll start with Rahab. You guys know the stories. I don't have to tell the stories in detail. Um, But Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. So not only was she a pagan, this lady sold her body to any guy who was willing to pay the price. And yet at some point, right, Rahab makes a choice. Life is filled with choices. And she makes a choice to turn away from her sin and to put her faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She puts her faith in the God of Israel. And how does God respond to that? Does he shame Rahab? Does God do this to her? No, no, he doesn't shame her. He showers her with his amazing grace. He changes her life. And the next thing you know, Rahab is no longer a Canaanite prostitute. Now this lady is a Hebrew proselyte. She's living with God's people. And she's living for the Lord. God still changes lives today. God loves sinners. Church, we got to get this. If we're really going to reach the treasure coast, we got to understand that God can take the vilest of sinners and make them by his amazing grace into some of the greatest of his saints. And we can never, ever, ever approach people as a Pharisee with some kind of uppity attitude where we look down our nose on other people because they're not living right. God forbid, we don't want that attitude in our church. Do we want to live holy? Yes. But do we want to judge other people and condemn them for their sin? That's not our message. Our message is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's our message in this place. How about Ruth? Ruth was a pagan idolater. She lived in Moab and she worshiped false gods. But one day she made a choice. She turned from her sin and she put her trust in the God of Israel. And what, how did God respond to that? Did he shame Ruth? No, he showers her with grace. He changes her life. This is what God does. And the next thing you know, Ruth is following Naomi into the promised land. And then later on, what is she doing? She's marrying a godly guy named Boaz. And then Ruth and Boaz had a son. I don't know why the Bible, the biblical characters name their kids what they name their kids, but this guy's name was Obed. Okay, praise the Lord. Are there any Obeds in the house tonight? So I make sure so I don't have to apologize later. But Ruth and Boaz have Obed. And then Obed has a son 
His name is Jesse. And then Jesse has a son, and his name is David. Speaking of which, third person on the list, Bathsheba. She commits adultery with David. And that, ladies and gentlemen, caused so much pain and hurt and confusion and sorrow. Please, please, please don't watch TV and see people who are so cool and so hip committing adultery and then not reaping any negative ramifications for their choice. Please, please, please understand that that is all fantasy, ladies and gentlemen. What is the law of life? The law of life is that you reap what you sow. Right? It's kind of like the law of gravity. How many of you guys believe in the law of gravity? There's some hands that are not up. All right, I'm going to prove it to you. <laughs> I'm going to prove the law of gravity. When I drop this cough drop, it's not going to go up. It's going to go down. Why? Because there's something called gravity. And it always happens the same way. Well, there's a law of life. It's called you reap what you sow. And so please don't think that you can commit adultery or you can have sex before marriage and not reap negative consequences. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, and so what happens? David and Bathsheba. By the way, don't think Bathsheba was innocent. It takes two to tango. And they both sinned. They both gave in to lust. And they caused so much hurt and so much confusion and so much pain. But praise the Lord, listen, at some point, Bathsheba made a choice. She turned from her sin. Listen, David absolutely repented. Read Psalm 51 later. And so Bathsheba turns from her sin. She puts her faith, her trust in the God of Israel. And what does God do? Does he shame Bathsheba? No, that's not our God. He showers her with his amazing grace. He changes her life. And the next thing you know, Bathsheba is raising a young man named Solomon in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Loving him, pouring into him, praying for him. And the next thing you know, man, Solomon is taking over the throne and he's green, he's young, and he doesn't know what to do. And so God says, ask for whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. And ladies and gentlemen, Solomon becomes the wisest king at that time. And not only that, not only the wisest man on earth at that time, but, but Solomon is king over Israel during its most successful era. And so before I get to Manasseh, let me hit pause here because we're talking about Solomon. And I don't know why I think the Lord wants me to do this. But even though we raise our kids to do what's right, please understand, ladies and gentlemen, they may make a choice to turn their back on your God. Right? That's what Solomon did. For years, what did Solomon do? He tried to fill his heart. By the way, it's the same three things. The devil has no new tricks. The same three things 3,000 years ago when Solomon walked the earth, it's the same thing that are taking down people today. He tries to fill the void in his heart, Solomon did, with sex, wealth, and power. 
thinking that sex is going to fill the void. Wealth is going to fill the void. Power is going to fill the void. How many of you guys know that no one and nothing can fill the void in our hearts except a right relationship with the Lord? That's it. That's it. But he thought he knew better. Turned his back on the Lord. But how many of you guys are grateful for, for praying mamas? And Bathsheba just kept praying. I'm so grateful that she never gave up on her son, right? And guess what, everybody? Later in life, Solomon turned back to the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me that Solomon wrote Proverbs 22. Specifically, Solomon wrote this famous verse right here. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we don't know if, if Solomon wrote that before he backslid or after he backslid and came back to the Lord. We don't know. I kind of lean towards the latter because I think as Solomon right here is speaking through experience. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, I got to throw you a curveball here, um, but you got to understand how to interpret this. We're getting right now real quick into hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? Well, you got to understand there's different genres in the Bible. This is not Romans. This is not the Apostle Paul, right? Writing canon law to 2,000 years of Christians filled with promises and Romans that we could take to the bank and stand on. No, no, the literary genre of Proverbs is poetic wisdom. And so what do you mean? What I mean is that we shouldn't interpret this as a divine promise where God guarantees that every kid that's raised right is always gonna turn out right. Now, the Holy Spirit may quicken in your heart as you're reading that and say that verse is for you and then you need to stand on it and you need to believe God. But you need to know that normally speaking, this is not a divine promise. This is a wonderful principle that shows what generally happens when kids are raised right. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, everybody's got a free will. And here's what you need to know. Everybody makes their choices in life. And here's what you need to know if you're listening, say amen here. God will not force himself on anyone. God will not force his love on anyone. What is forced love? Forced love is rape, which is not love at all. God is not a divine rapist. God is infinitely holy and God is infinitely loving. So he can't, he's not able. What do you mean? God can't sin. He can't force love on anybody because that's not love and God is eternal love. You guys follow me here? Everybody makes their choice. By the way, this is why I'm not a five-point extreme Calvinist. I am a moderate Calvinist. If you want to know what that means, you can talk to me later. But I'm not a five-point extreme Calvinist. Why? Because I believe with all my heart that everybody's got a choice. Ladies and gentlemen, why do you think there's a hell? You know what bothers me? 
I'm going to take three more minutes. But you know what bothers me? It bothers me that there's people in our culture today who are lost and they're taking moral high ground over God and they're calling God a moral monster because he created a place called hell where people go forever, separated from him. And they think that God is wrong. Now, can you imagine the hubris, the pride of putting yourself in that position where you're above God trying to tell say that God is doing something wrong. That sounds satanic to me. But they say that God's some kind of moral monster, right? Because he created this. By the way, God created hell not for us. God created hell for the devil and his fallen angels. But here's the thing. I'll quote C.S. Lewis. You can chew on it later. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. And so... God's not gonna force his love on anyone. We are free moral agents. All of us have a choice. And God is not gonna force some rebel into his kingdom. Is this making sense to you guys? Okay, and so what's my point? My point is that you may raise your kid right. You may raise your kid to love the Lord and that kid may turn their back on your God. And so here's my encouragement to you. If you're a mama or a daddy and your heart is broken because of a wayward son or a wayward daughter, here's my encouragement to you. Never, ever, ever give up hope. Never stop loving them. Never stop hanging out with them. Never stop praying for them. Because even though God won't force love on anybody, how many of you guys know God is a great wooer and drawer? And he has a way to get our attention. God God, God, God has an amazing way. Man, he's so awesome and so wise. He has a way to get that person's attention in just the way to win them to himself. So never, ever, ever give up on that person. He can turn the greatest of sinners into the greatest of saints. And that leads you to your last person on the list because this is what happened in his life, and that's Manasseh. So we're done in Matthew. Real quick, go over to 2 Chronicles 33, 2 Chronicles 33. So as you're turning to 2 Chronicles 33, let me just say that Manasseh was the son of King Hezekiah. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that King Hezekiah was a godly guy. I mean, you could not get a better dad than this. King Hezekiah would have won Dad of the Year Award. And he has Manasseh, right? And no doubt, Hezekiah raises his boy to do what's right. And he ascends, Manasseh does, to the throne of Judah. He's put on the throne when he's 12 years old. Now, even though he was taught to do what's right, here's what happened. Later in life, Manasseh turns his back on the God of his father. And what's the result? The result is that Manasseh becomes one of the worst kings, one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history. I mean, this guy, man, he becomes an idolater. He becomes a soothsayer. He begins consulting mediums. And worst of all, I can't believe this, this guy, Manasseh, he actually sacrifices his boys in the fire to foreign gods. Now, because of the law of life, you reap what you sow. Always happens. God stepped in. Next thing you know, here comes the enemy. 
And the next thing you know, they capture Manasseh with hooks. I don't know what exactly that means, but it sounds really painful. And then they wrap him in chains and they take him to Babylon. And Manasseh, ladies and gentlemen, he hits rock bottom. Now, how many of you guys know that the Lord sometimes allows people to hit rock bottom because when you hit rock bottom, there's no other way to look except up. So he hits rock bottom. Another quick pause in the message. I just want to say this, that some of you guys have wayward kids or wayward friends, and you keep bailing them out. You keep rescuing them. Now, I'm not talking about all the situations in this room. I'm talking about some of the situations in this room. But for some of you, you got to stop bailing the kid out. You got to stop rescuing the kid. In other words, don't make good what God is making bad. God's making it bad. Why? Because that kid or that friend needs to get down here so there's only one direction to look in, and that's up. Now, it's not all of you because the Holy Spirit may tell some of you to go do something for somebody. I'm not talking to you. You need to obey the Lord. But you see what I'm saying here. Manasseh hits rock bottom, and the next thing you know, what happens is that he repents. Now, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 12. It says that when he, Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Verse 13, he prayed to God, and God, look at this, was moved. Man, this is what makes me love God so much. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. You see what's going on here? Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history, right? But at some point, after he hits rock bottom, he makes a choice. He turns from his sin. He puts his faith in the God of Israel. And how does God respond? Does he throw him into hell because he burned his son in the fire? No, God is moved because the guy's humble. God is moved because the guy is repentant. And what does God do? He showers Manasseh with his grace and he makes Manasseh one of the greatest kings at the end of his life in Judah's history. In other words, Manasseh, the next thing you know, his life has changed and he's tearing down false um, idols and false altars and he is implementing godly reform in Judah. Now, in closing, I wanna say this. You may be here today and you may be thinking right now, I have done some awful things in my life and I think God really doesn't want anything to do with me. And I just wanna remind you as your pastor that nothing could be further from the truth. Look, look I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done, God Man, if he loved Rahab and he kept loving Ruth and he kept loving Bathsheba and he kept loving Manasseh, he kept wooing them, he kept drawing them, you need to know this, God loves you. No matter what you've done, 
He loves you. Please, let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. If you're going your own way and doing your own thing, make a choice. Turn to Christ. When you turn to Christ, what are you turning away from, everybody? Your sin. I'm not saying you gotta do good works. I'm not saying moral reform. I'm not saying you gotta pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not saying um, any of that at all. What I am saying is you gotta be willing to turn from your sin. Only Christ has the power to deliver you from that, that junk. But you gotta be willing to turn from your sin to the Savior, believing that he paid for your sins on the cross. Now, I'm very excited to share this really quick. You remember the law of life? You reap what you sow, right? It's, it happens every single time. But here's how grace intervenes. If you're listening, say amen here. Christ reaped what we sowed. We sowed sin. We deserve to reap eternal separation from God. And Jesus said no. And he took what you and I sowed he took our sin on the cross and he paid it in full, satisfying the wrath of God. He died, he shed his blood and died and then he rose again the third day. Why? Because he loves you. He wants you to be his disciple. He wants you.